But if you guys have your Bibles, if you can open up uh, with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. All right, and we are in our third message um, in this study. And uh, I think as, as we look through our passage tonight, you guys are going to realize that uh, some of the things that, that we talk about tonight are going to come up or we've heard already in, in the previous messages. And I think that's going to happen throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. It's pretty repetitive. And I, I kind of realized that after finishing the first message. And I think the first message of Ecclesiastes, that first passage is like we said, it's the prologue, right? It's kind of an intro to the book. Um, and so in many ways, it's it was kind of like preaching the whole book. Um, but now that that's done and we're actually kind of getting into the body of this book, um, I think we're going to see kind of the same things come up over and over again. And hopefully uh, it, it doesn't get too repetitive and hopefully it can we can keep it fresh and new in some sense. But I think at the same time, I think we could probably use the repetition. Like we've been saying, one of the, the biggest things that Ecclesiastes reminds us of especially as young people and something that it kind of rebukes us of is that we can go through life disillusioned, right? We, we might acknowledge that life is perplexing or uh, frustrating or enigmatic, but at the same time, even though we kind of, you know, intellectually acknowledge those things, we also can convince ourselves that there's a way out of it, right? We can, we can convince ourselves that, uh, we can beat the system, so to speak, whether that's through learning something or experiencing something or having something or accomplishing something. Uh, and so I, th- I think that's why we like we could use the repetition. I think that's why uh, the preacher do- writes it this way. At the very end in chapter 12, uh, he, the preacher says that his words are like goads. Um, a goad is a long stick with a pointed end, a pointed like a, a nail or a pointed end. Um, at the very end of it. And a goat is used to drive cattle. It's used to herd up cattle and to get them moving. And the preacher says that is what his words are supposed to do for us. Okay, they're like goats. They, they are meant to wake us up a little bit and they're meant to get us going. Okay, and uh, as we go through this book, I want you guys to remember as we go through these messages that he's taking us somewhere. Okay, he he's given us this thesis that we looked at in our first passage in chapter one, and he's moving us along towards this conclusion that we don't get until chapter 12, right? The the point or the answer to this question that he raises doesn't come until the very end. And along the way, the preacher wants us to feel this very uncomfortable reality of life under the sun. Okay, so that's that's kind of how the book of Ecclesiastes works. Um, And so for tonight, we're in chapter two, and we're gonna look at all of chapter two. Um, and I actually want to read all of it. So I know it's a, a big chunk of scripture, but uh, I'm, I'm going to read all of chapter two. So if you guys aren't there yet, go ahead and turn there. And then let me begin reading. This is Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. Preacher says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made good works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines to the light of the sons of man. Uh, verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after winning. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and is striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person that, than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we ask now just for insight, uh, for humility, for understanding um, into uh into your word, into the truth that it confronts us with um, tonight. And uh, I do pray that you would really help us to be sober-minded um, before what you have to say. Um, help us to, to really cling to these words as wisdom for our lives, as um, goads from the preacher to, to drive us in the right direction. Uh, so God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at this in three sections. If you guys uh, see on your notes... The pursuit uh, is our first point. So if the very first passage that we looked at, right, chapter one, verses one to 11, is the preacher's conclusion about life as he observes nature. You guys remember that? He talks about the waters and the sun and all of that. Then you can think of chapter two as his conclusion about life as observed through his experience. 
okay, through his experience. And Seichi actually started this section for us last week. It actually starts back in chapter uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, and then it ends in the end of chapter 2. But in this section, the preacher talks about the various ways in which we try to seek gain from this life. You guys remember the thesis of Ecclesiastes that we pointed to? Uh, it's in chapter 1, verse 3. The preacher says that there's nothing that can be gained from all your toil under the sun. Right? There's nothing that you can profit. There's nothing at the end of your life where you can say, you know, this was worthwhile. This justifies all of the things that I did. And this section in chapter two, it gives us the various methods by which we try to disprove that thesis. These are the different ways that we pursue gain in this life. And one of these pursuits, as we saw last time, was the pursuit of wisdom, right? That's verses 12 to 18 of chapter one. And this wisdom is going to come up again in our passage. Um, But what we learned last week is that wisdom, even Solomon's wisdom, right? Great and unmatched wisdom, even wisdom has its limitations, that wisdom is valuable. Uh, in fact, that's what the preacher is going to say later in our passage. If you look in verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. Right? Wisdom is better, but wisdom cannot eliminate uh, or solve the frustrations of this life. Wisdom cannot fix what is crooked. It cannot provide what is lacking. That's what uh, verse 15 said in, in chapter 1. And actually, the preacher says, the more that you know, right, the more that you get grow in knowledge and wisdom, the more that you actually become aware of the reality of life and it actually increases sorrow and actually increases vexation. And so here in chapter two, uh, the preacher says, OK, if gaining wisdom won't do it, then maybe something else will. And so he turns to this whole catalog of other pursuits, things like pleasure and work and wealth and possessions. Um, Look at verse one of chapter two. Look what he says. He says, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Um, If you guys remember last week, Seichi mentioned first Kings chapter 10. um, And in that passage, the queen of Sheba uh, travels to Solomon and she is curious about his wisdom. She runs to learn about his wisdom. And the word that it actually uses in in first Kings 10 is uh, the queen of Sheba wants to test Solomon's wisdom with hard questions. And that's that same word that shows up here, right? She, uh, it, it means to spend time with, to observe, to thoroughly examine, to experiment with. And so that's what the preacher does here with every kind of pleasure. And if you look at verses three to eight, right, this whole list of things, it's a very comprehensive and it's a very impressive list. What are the things that he experiments with? Well, it says laughter, wine, Houses and vineyards, gardens and parks, male and female slaves, herds and flocks, silver and gold, singers, concubines, all of these things, um, all of these kinds of pleasures under the sun. And the preacher spends time with these things and he thoroughly examines them. He wants to see, can you uh, get gain from these things? Uh, Derek Kidner, he's a commentator. He points out how when you read through these verses that they're supposed to almost evoke like thoughts of the Garden of Eden where it's almost as if this preacher is trying to create or recreate God's good and perfect world. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is at the very end of this experiment or pursuit. It says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So this verses nine and 10 is him looking back after going on this pursuit. And these verses tell us he makes it right. He arrives. He had everything that you could ask for. And don't miss that very last bit there um, in verse 10, right? It actually says he found some enjoyment, okay? It says he actually found some pleasure in all his toil. Uh, but I, I think this is where we need to go back to our thesis again, right? And we, have, we were pretty specific about what that thesis meant, right? The preacher is not saying that life is completely meaningless. He is not saying that we're, uh, you know, like nothing matters at all, that there's nothing like good in this life. Rather, what he was saying back in the thesis of chapter one is that we are unable to find any permanent and ultimate gain from life. And so that's the question that that salt or that this preacher is asking as he stands back in verses nine and 10, and he considers all of his possessions, all of his pleasures, all of his accomplishments. He asks himself at the end of the day, it all, did any of this amount to gain? Right? Not just did I enjoy it, but did, did, did this amount to gain? Was it really worth it at the end of the day? Does the end result, does the final product balance out with the amount of time that it took to earn it? And what is this conclusion? Verse 11, second part, it says, And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And we've heard that already because he said that earlier in chapter one, we're right back where we started. And he realizes that these pursuits, they couldn't solve the dilemma of life under the sun. There is no, there is no lasting and permanent gain in these things. Now, what are we supposed to get from this? Um, I want to, I think it's important to kind of clarify what he means here. Okay. I think it's important to point out that the preacher is not simply warning us against excess. Okay, he's not just warning us against like a lavish lifestyle. See, when we read through these verses and we see things like wine or slaves or concubines, uh, maybe you guys are familiar with Solomon's life and, and you like, you know, that there's this part of his life where he just totally like, you know, went off the deep end and, and you know, like kind of went crazy. Uh, it's easy to, to read this and, it, and just to like chalk it up to, well, it's because he was living in unrestrained and sinful debauchery. Right? It's because he like just totally gave himself over to all of these things. <clears throat> and maybe you think of like the Hollywood celebrities um, who you know have all the fame and money and power in the world, and yet they are like totally unhappy, right? And they're totally unfulfilled. And I think that's I mean, I think that's a pretty good analogy here, right? Like Solomon was kind of like that. Uh, but I want you to look at what else the preacher commits himself to. Okay, it's not just like drugs, alcohol, and sex, and like concubines and stuff like that. Look at what else he commits himself to. It's building projects, agriculture, art, uh, impressive accomplishments. And we learned that he worked hard to get there. Okay. Um, in fact, if you look in verse three, he points out, he says, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. And then later in verse nine, he says, my wisdom remained with me. So in other words, even though Solomon experienced, even though he enjoyed every kind of pleasure that this world had to offer, he didn't just like abandon all thinking. He didn't just dive headlong into excess. He wasn't just like living living it up. Uh, he tells us actually the whole time he was mindful of this experiment that he was doing. 
Okay? He wasn't just seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake, but he was seeking this really to test whether it was a means to gain in this life. And I point that out because I think that keeps us from turning to the wrong solution. Okay. The solution isn't just like do all things in moderation. Okay. I think like we can wrongly assume that is the correct answer. Like we think, oh, well, if Solomon had one wife, you know, instead of 700, uh, he'd be fine. Or if he didn't drink so much wine, like he wouldn't feel so hungover. Uh, if Solomon just lived in moderation, then he wouldn't be so depressed. He wouldn't arrive at the same conclusion. And I think for you guys, especially as college students, uh, like you encounter these kinds of people all the time, right? And it's so easy, just people who like totally live in the world and just uh, unrestrained, indulging in the pleasures of the world. And I think for us, it's so easy to think, well, like their life is that way because they just partied too hard, right? They like uh, went way too YOLO, right? They should have spent more time in the library. Uh, they should have went to double ACF more. They should have like not had another play at uh, the dorm halls or whatever, or the dining halls. Uh, and there are some of you who like, who think that, right? And, and your life doesn't look like that. And you're happy with living a relatively simple life. Um, you don't really care to have the nicest stuff. You are content with like middle-class ambitions. You don't, your life doesn't look like the preacher's life. You know that money or the nicest brands or the most up-to-date technology will not make you ultimately happy. Well, don't miss the direction of the preacher's argument here. Okay, the moral of the story, the, the lesson that we're supposed to learn, it is not that the preacher had too much stuff and he gave himself to too much pleasure. That it's not that he, he crossed the line, he broke the rules, and so don't be like him. That's not what the preacher is trying to teach us. Rather, it's that when it comes to the pursuit of pleasure, he's telling us that he's exhausted it. Right? He's done everything that you can imagine. And I think that's what verse 12 means um, when it says that, when it says, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. I think that's what he's saying, that, uh, in other words, the problem is not that he missed out on something. Okay, you can't one-up him. You can't do more than he did. One commentator says this about these verses. He says, such listings are supposed to show the king to be more successful than the ordinary person and more accomplished than all other kings who preceded him. But the preacher itemizes the king's many accomplishments only to show that even Solomon Israel's most glamorous king is not better off than ordinary people in some ways. Now, I think this rebukes our kind of like millennial mindset, doesn't it? Uh, maybe you guys can relate to this. When you're unhappy with your current major or with your current career, uh, what do you think to yourself? Or you're like, oh, maybe I should switch to this instead. Right. Or maybe I should live. And we do this to everything. Right. Maybe I should live in this city instead. Um, you know, just for a few years while I'm still young before I settle down. Um, if I'm unhappy in this relationship, well, maybe I should be with this person instead. Right. We think, oh, it's because I haven't done this other thing. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to like desire change. It's not wrong to change things in our lives. But the preacher is warning us that he has experienced the whole variety of pleasures and endeavors. And he's telling us that that is not ultimately why you are still unhappy. That is not fundamentally why you are still frustrated or unfulfilled. 
When all is said and done, whoever you are, life is still Havel, right? It's still vanity. It's still a striving after wind. It's inscrutable. It's ungraspable. Life is still fleeting. It's like your breath on a cold day. And I think another thing, especially for you guys as college students, that this preacher uh, is speaking or is teaching us or that I want to point out is that he's speaking at the end of his life, right? He's, he's at the end of his life and he's looking back and he's speaking from a place after having arrived, right? He's made it. He's accomplished all that he has set out to do. And yet he says that cannot satisfy you. I know there are many of you um, who are working really, really hard right now. You're working your butts off right now. And maybe for like the next several years of school um, for something in the future, whether that's a career, whether that's a family, whether that's just financial security. Um, And those of you who are pre-med, like really get this, right? You're like studying for MCAT and then applications, then med school and then residency. And then like, there's maybe even more school after that. And uh, for many of you, you're like in the middle of something that is incredibly future oriented, right? Something that where you are just holding on to this idea of like delayed gratification, it's going to get better at the end. Like it's going to be worth it at the end. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay. Like that's, that's not necessarily bad, but the danger, I think, especially as young people with potential is that we can assume that we are not happy We can assume that we are not fulfilled because you have not arrived yet. And we think of life to be like a ladder where you're just like climbing from one rung to the next, from one milestone in your life to the next. And for you guys, maybe you have your five and your 10 year plans. um, And in, in that plan, right? Like each year keeps getting better. No one draws a five year plan where it just like goes from down or from like high point to low point, right? That's not how five year or 10 year plans work. Each year it keeps getting better until finally you're at that finish line and you're where you want to be, right? You think, oh, I'm going to intern somewhere next summer and I'm going to take this exam. And then finally, or hopefully I'll get this job offer and then I'll be able to afford this house. And then I'll be able to live in this city and then I'll be able to travel for a little bit. And then after I travel in my twenties, like I'll get married, I'll have kids and then I'll buy another house. Guys, the preacher is teaching us that the solution isn't just uh, to live a more balanced or a godly life, right? It's not just uh, to live in moderation uh, more than the preacher did. It's not to experience the thing that you've been missing out on this whole time. And he also said it's not a matter of time and just getting to your destination. Those are the wrong solutions because you've diagnosed the wrong problem. And so what's the real problem? One author puts it like this. He says, your problem with futility has little to do with what you haven't yet experienced or haven't yet accomplished or haven't yet acquired. The problem is not that you haven't arrived. The problem is where you're going. The problem is where you're going. And that leads us to our second point, which is the problem. The problem. In verse 12, the preacher returns again to uh, consider wisdom. He says, wisdom and madness and folly. And like we said earlier, he actually says that wisdom is better than folly. He says that in verse 13. He says, uh, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. How is wisdom better? Well, I think you guys can figure it out, right? Wisdom helps you to see life more clearly. Um, That's what he says in verse 14. Wisdom 
uh, helps us to choose what's right over wrong, right? And we, we avoid certain consequences. We avoid making certain mistakes. Um, and so wisdom is better, right? That's what we learn in scripture. Um, Proverbs say, get wisdom. But one reason why wisdom is not better than folly is that it saves you from the same end. Right? Verse 14, he says, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them, whether you live a wise life or whether you live a foolish life. Verse 14 says the same event happens to all. And what is that same event? Well, you guys already know this, right? It's it's death. That same event is that we all die in the end. That is the fundamental problem um, to seeking gain in this life. And here we see that the reality of death casts the shadow, uh, not just on the things that we do in this life, like our daily activities, but it casts this shadow on the pursuits that we like wholeheartedly commit and devote our lives to. Things like the pursuit of wisdom and work and pleasure. Uh, Look at verse 15. He says, what's the point of living a life of wisdom if what is going to happen to the foolish person is going to happen to the wise person also? Or verse 16, what's the point of trying to influence others for good and, and trying to like leave a good legacy or a name for yourself if you will soon be forgotten because you're going to die? Or verses 18 and 19, what's the point of working so hard if you can't take anything with you? If you just leave it all for the next guy and you can't even guarantee what that next person is going to do with it. Uh, in fact, I think the harder you work for something, the more like jarring and appalling that thought, right? That you have to leave Uh, you know, the fruit of all your labor into the hands of someone else. And how would you feel if upon graduation, that prestigious job offer or that grad school acceptance that you like worked so hard for, you pulled all nighters for, I didn't go to you, but it went to like your younger sibling, right? Or like even worse, what if it went to just some random college student that goes to the same school as you? And so like all of these frustrations and then verse 17, we get this conclusion He says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all his vanity and his striving after went. So I'm wondering, can you guys feel what the preacher feels? Can you share in those frustrations? Does does the the shadow of death like cause that feeling in you as well? These feelings of vexation and frustration and despair. And if you can, then I think, good, right? Like that is what, that is uh, what the preacher wants to be our starting point. But if you can't, I think that's the problem that the preacher is trying to diagnose. He's trying to show us that we have uh, so distracted ourselves from this inescapable reality, which is the human problem of death. I mean, last time I used an illustration uh, from David Gibson and he describes death as the pin that bursts every bubble that we use our shell that we use to shield ourselves from the truth, right? Like the thing that pops the bubbles that we're living in. And uh, I think we all understand what we mean that by that, right? That phrase, like uh, living in a bubble, um, like college, I think in many ways is a bubble or a double ACF is a bubble. Um, if you guys are following the NBA playoffs, they're, they're in a bubble, right? It's like not reality. Um, people say the suburbs are a bubble or the city of Irvine, um, or maybe like you grew up in an Asian American bubble. Like that's all you knew. Um, a bubble is insular, insular, right? It's not an accurate reflection of the bigger or wider reality. 
And Gibson says that we are so prone to creating these bubbles and, and living in them, these like insular realities, whether it's the pursuits that we undertake, right, with work or pleasure or wisdom, or maybe it's just certain attitudes that we have about life and the way that it's supposed to work. Uh, for example, like we said earlier, maybe you live with this false notion that life is like climbing a ladder where you are moving from one thing to the next. That's your bubble. Right. And like you ignore the reality that you have no idea what tomorrow will bring or that you'll even get tomorrow at all. Or maybe for you, you live with this false notion that those who work harder deserve more than those who don't. You, you, you like wholeheartedly believe that hard work will get you further in life. And yeah, that's generally true. We see that in the Bible. But is that something that is worth putting like your entire stock in in light of the reality of death? I think as young people, it's very easy for us to ignore the fact that you and I will die someday. And, and like, we know that, right? We know that intellectually, uh, if by someday, you know, you mean like when I'm 70 years old, um, I'll die someday, but I'm not going to die today. Uh, as long as I don't do anything stupid, right? As long as I obey God's commandments, as long as I'm healthy and I eat right and I like clean living, you know, like as long as I do this, like I'm not going to die and we deceive, our, we deceive ourselves, we delude ourselves in this kind of thinking. We live in these bubbles, right? These like insular realities. Um, so we deceive ourselves and we distract ourselves. Um, Blaise Pascal, he famously said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. That's a pretty interesting statement. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Now he's not talking about uh, extroverts. He's not talking about hating awkward silences. What he is talking about is, he's, is our inability to really sit face to face with the serious realities of life. That we have this tendency to perpetually distract ourselves from those things. And what do we do instead? Well, we pull our phones out, out of our pockets, right? And like we scroll. Uh, we do that like literally and metaphorically. And we're like, oh, give me something new. Give me something funny or exciting. Um, we've refreshed our news feeds, even though like you literally finished going down the whole thing five minutes ago. All right? We distract ourselves with social media. And my point isn't that cell phones or social media are bad. Like maybe for you, those things aren't distractions for you personally. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's like just filling up your schedule with stuff. What is it for you? Beacon, when is the last time that you slowed down and you really honestly contemplated the reality that you will one day die? When's the last time you thought about that? And a sustained meditation on the reality of death, it doesn't make us morbid. It makes us humble. Okay, It makes us humble. Um, the author, Matthew McCullough, uh, he gives this thought experiment. He says, think of something that you desperately want. Okay, maybe for you, it's your diploma right now. Maybe it's the position or a title at your workplace. Uh, maybe it's finding a spouse or having kids or buying a house. Maybe it's something that, think of that thing where you like just spend time thinking about each and every day. Now imagine that one day you get that thing. Right? You, you finally attain it, you tell all of your friends, you make plans to celebrate, um, and, and later that day, 
you have uh, this follow-up appointment with your doctor to get some test results. And uh, for the past week, you've had headaches, you have back pain. It's nothing like unusual, but now you ha- you've had this follow-up appointment with your doctor and he's using words like stage four um, or terminal or inoperable. And so on the same day, you achieve that one thing that you've been dreaming about for your entire life, maybe like literally every sec- every waking second of every waking day, you achieve that thing. And on that same day, you learn that you have only six more months to live. This author asked this question, be honest, what piece of news is likely to define your day? What are you going to remember that day by? I think his point is that there is something about death that just trumps everything else. That, there, that is what the preacher wants us to feel and to understand, that death is the inescapable human problem. It is the pin that bursts our bubbles. It deflates our sense of self-importance. It deflates our, and it, it removes and eliminates uh, any illusions of control over this vapor-like life. He wants us to get that. But there's more to this passage, okay? Death also provides the perspective that we need to find meaningful enjoyment. That leads us to our last point, the perspective we need. The perspective we need. Look at verse 24. He says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. So if you guys didn't notice, um, God actually hasn't been mentioned since back earlier in one uh, fourteen. Uh, so this whole, like this whole section, he hasn't really been mentioned, but here in these three verses, God is mentioned three times in three verses. And if you look at it, the emphasis is on what God gives. Okay. What God gives And so what does he give specifically? Well, if you look at the verses, he gives us the things that we get to enjoy. And he says, God gives us eat and drink and toil. Um, So God gives us our experiences, our possessions, um, wealth, opportunities, status, jobs, education, relationships, projects, accomplishments. God gives us all of those things. Those are his gifts for us to enjoy. But notice what else he says. Okay, it's not just stuff that God gives us as gifts. But actually, he also gives us the enjoyment itself. He gives us the ability to enjoy. Uh, Verse 24, the second part, he says, This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, how is enjoyment a gift from God? Well, I think most of us understand that uh, when you get something, right, or when you have something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will enjoy that thing. Um, as one author put it, endless enjoyment doesn't come in the box with your iPhone. If it did, why would you consider that upgrade? Right? So we get stuff. It doesn't mean we're going to necessarily enjoy it. Enjoyment comes from perspective. Okay, that's what verse 26 is talking about. It says, to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Now, when he's comparing those two kinds of people there, I don't think he's talking about like, a moral person versus an immoral person. I don't think he's uh, even, 
I don't think the focus is even on like a good person versus a bad person as much as he's contrasting these two different perspectives. Okay. He says for the one who has set out on the business of gathering and collecting um, and seeking gain in this life, he says, that's all that this person is going to know. God is absent from this person's understanding of life in this world. But for the one who acknowledges and receives all things from the hand of God, right? When God is in the picture, when you recognize that he is the giver, then you will know wisdom and knowledge and joy. And the preacher says this perspective, this ability to enjoy, this is a gift that's been given by God. Right? To realize that is a gift that has been given by God. Um, in Ecclesiastes 1, um, in our first section, verses 1 to 11, we talked about uh, what is our, our human unwillingness to accept things as they are, right? Like uh, he talks about how life is repetitive, how it is um, maybe boring sometimes. It's like you can't guarantee certain things. Uh, it's frustrating. Uh, it's We are unwilling to accept things as they are. And I think we see that same problem here in our chapter. And in this case, our unwillingness, I think, is to accept God's gifts as they are. Right? We want them to be more than just gifts. We want them to be means to gain something else. And so I think the big idea here, the thing that uh, the preacher is trying to get across to us, the message he's trying to send is this, to appreciate good gifts as God intended. Appreciate good gifts as God intended. Enjoy what God gives you. That's the big idea. He says, wisdom and knowledge and education is a gift. It's not something to be leveraged. It's not just a stepping stone to something else. Pleasure is to be enjoyed, but it is not the pathway to ultimate and permanent satisfaction. It's not something worth living your life for. Laughter, it's good. Laugh at jokes, but it's not meant to just ignore the serious parts of your life. Food and drink are good. It's something meant to be savored. Uh, but it's not meant to be an escape. Work is good. Work is even enjoyable, no matter what you do. If we can learn not to just view it as like the thing to get us to the next place that we want to be. All of these things are gifts from the hand of God. They are not tools that we use to master life for, for our own ends. And the preacher says that when we learn this, right, when we learn to stop putting these infinite demands on these finite things, then you live a life of freedom. You live a life where you can truly enjoy things, even in a life that is characterized by vanity, right? By in, even uh, in this life under the sun, we learn to value work apart from its results, apart from uh, work, what work can get us or where we hope it'll lead us we start to realize that all of us enjoy gifts or things that we don't deserve, right? That's God's gift. That's God's grace. And at the same time, we realize that we all lack things that we expect to have. And that's a reminder that we're not in control. So guys, think about what this truth means for your life right now, right? For uh, pretty much all of us, we're like mostly stuck at home during this pandemic. What does it look like to receive that as a gift from the hand of God? I mean, some of you are super anxious for all of this just to be over, right? Like you see it as some hindrance getting in the way of something else in your life, right? This obstacle that's keeping you from seeing your friends again, this thing that is making your job prospects like pretty unfavorable, whatever it might be, you just see it as a hindrance, 
or maybe for others of you, like you've accepted the present circumstances a little bit more, but then you're thinking like, okay, then I have to redeem all of this free time. I have to finish this project that I've been meaning to get to. I have to pick up this skill or hobby uh, to have something to show for it at the very end. You guys, do you see how easy it is for us to view things in our lives as tools and as stepping stones rather than to receive them as gifts from the hand of God? I think for me, the truth of Ecclesiastes has been convicting, um, but helpful um, because I feel like recently I've been, I've found myself thinking about the future a lot. I think, especially when it comes to ministry, Um, like, like I'll actually lie awake at night and I'll like, I'll wonder to myself, like, do I see myself doing full-time ministry in 30 years, 30, 40 years? Like I can see it, you know, for the next few years, but like decades from now, can I, like, can I see myself doing that? And then when I'm not sure, like I'll wander on uh, off into these thoughts of like thinking back to the past and like, oh, what if I, you know, made this decision in college rather than this one? What if I, you know, was in this fellowship instead of this fellowship, or I went to this church instead of this church? Like, how would my life be different? And so I think Ecclesiastes has been helpful for me because like, even though it's not this comprehensive answer to all of the things that I'm thinking through, it reminds me that each and every day that I get is a gift, right? What I get to do right now is a gift. And so I'm supposed to receive it and I'm supposed to enjoy it because it comes from the hand of God. Death teaches us to enjoy God's good gifts as he intended to receive them for what they are in and of themselves, to stop trying to look past them for your own gain. And if you are going to look past them, if they are going to point you to something, we we know in the rest of scripture, right? Let them point you to the giver. James 1.17, it says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights. And so as believers, we know that God's good gifts lead us not only to enjoyment, but it actually leads us also to worship, right? And I think um, Seiji did a really good job of just giving us helpful and practical questions and uh, helping to parse through our hearts. I I would point you back to those. Um, Yeah, just to check our hearts when it comes to worship and receiving um, God's good gifts and, and pointing us back to him, the giver. Let me close by just giving you three quick thoughts for application. Um, and by the way, these, these application points that we give each week, they aren't meant to be comprehensive, okay? Um, in fact, I think for you guys, like growing in, in reading and studying the Bible means that we're growing and thinking through these applications for ourselves. Um, and so there is like many more applications than these three. And if you can think of any, like I'd encourage you to share it with your small group. Um, but anyway, I think the truth of this passage is an invitation to three opportunities, Okay, and I think these maybe might come up later. Ecclesiastes, we'll see. Um, But the first one is this, an opportunity to expose idols. An opportunity to expose idols. I know that here at Lighthouse, we talk about idols a lot. And I think because of that, it's always helpful when we can be reminded of those same truths in fresh ways. When we think about those bubbles that we talked about earlier, these these pursuits or these beliefs about life that we live in to, to insulate ourselves from the reality of death, Right, from the reality of uh, the Havel of this life. We're really talking about our idols. Right? We're really talking about these false gods that we've set up and that we place our hope and our trust in to save us from life under the sun. And these aren't always necessarily bad things. 
right? Wisdom, knowledge, possessions, hard work, relationships, those aren't bad things. But like we've often said, some of those moments where we have the most clarity into the worship of our own hearts is when our idols are threatened. And I think in the case of our passage, it's when the reality of death is that pin that bursts our bubbles, right? Death reveals the things that we've really placed our stock in. And so take this as an opportunity to examine your own heart, right? And to expose whatever idols there might be. Um, Two is reconsider priorities. Reconsider priorities. If the reality of death means that our days are numbered, then wisdom, this is what the psalmist prays in Psalm 90, right? Teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. Wisdom means that we live differently in light of that reality, right? If you acknowledge that this like monumental reality of death and then you live as if everything else is the same, that would just be utter foolishness. And so what does this look like for you? How does death reorient and rearrange the things that you consider important? How does it reorder the things that take up time and space in your life? And for you guys, I would encourage you to be as specific as you can be. How does it reframe things like your time or your opportunities or limitations that you have, um, your abilities, ambitions, and your goals? Maybe for you, it's learning to prioritize people more, right? Like maybe you've operated with this mentality mentality that you will get to people and you'll get to relationships once everything is squared away, once your to-do list is clear. Maybe that's, that's one area you need to reorder your priorities. I mean, I think another obvious priority that becomes significant in the light of reality of death is evangelism, right, and missions. Um, and we're in evangelism month for October. Um, so as you mentioned, CrossCon, I would point you guys to those things, right? Evangelism matters, right? People are dying without the gospel. And then number three, another opportunity from this passage is an opportunity to give thanks. First uh, Thessalonians 5.18, it says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So Beacon, do you make it a habit of regularly giving thanks to God for what he's given you? And I think one of the biggest things that often robs us of enjoying God's gifts is envy, right? Or it's comparison with other people. We look around at what others have and what we don't, um, and we're not happy. Right? We are not happy with what the Bible calls um, our lot or our portion. Uh, we're not happy with the cards that we've been dealt or the place that God has assigned us to be or the things that, he, that he's given us to do um, or the people that he has surrounded us with because we would rather have this other person's lot or portion. I think one practical way that we can grow in fighting comparison and envy and discontentment is by cultivating this heart of gratitude. Right? By just practicing giving thanks by growing eyes that are more and more aware of God's grace in our own lives and also in the lives of other people. Um, David Gibson, uh, I've quoted him uh, a few times now, but uh, he wrote a really helpful book um, called Living Life Backwards that I've been pretty heavily depending on, but he summarizes our passage well with these words. He says, "When when we accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that reality can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, 
we take the time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. Now, as Christians, um, as much as we've talked about death tonight, we have the privilege and the extra information, right, of knowing that life under the sun and death is not all that there is. But I think rather than, like, exempting us from the preacher's words, I think the gospel and I think just our perspective from the cross makes these words even more meaningful. Okay, we still live in light of death because we will still all die. But we don't have to fear it, right? We don't have to try to seek satisfaction in the pursuits of this life because if we have a relationship with the only one who satisfies. And we can even more humbly and we can even more joyfully receive from God's hands, his gifts, whatever they are, because we know they are good and they are loving because he's demonstrated that for us by giving us his very own son. Right? That's, that's what we know as Christians. And so again, the big idea from this passage Right? Live in light of death and let death allow you to enjoy God's good gifts from his hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, just the sobering reminder from your word um, that it does wake us up from our slumber and from um, our distractions and uh, from our little bubbles, I think, that we can just so often live in. Um, and it really wakes us up to uh, what life is like and what you have said life is like under the sun. And so I just pray that you would really help us to process what we just heard, um, to take the preacher's wisdom to heart. I pray for just fruitful um, discussions in our small groups. Um, God, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.